Um, the additional ideas, they all have some interesting things. I didn't think Argent and, and the NVB projects, because they're small settlements in open countryside, really had a lot to offer us. But the others, the Blundell scheme, which is an extension of Maidstone, was very revealing, uh, tying infrastructure investment to cost recovery. The Leach and Critchley project on the main uh, sort of northwest corridor on the M1, etc., um, was uh, a low, low, low price. No affordable housing, but house prices at 150,000 uh, as, as an average. So, you know, low price home ownership. So that was extremely interesting. And the MVP project has got something quite similar. I wanted to pick up on the Barton Wilmore and Wai Yang proposals because I think they are also interesting and they particularly emphasize this notion of what we actually need is a national spatial plan and that we need some kind of structuring of, of these initiatives and these ideas. And of course, Barton Wilmore make that point very clearly with their light green areas as potential search sites, um, of course, straight into the green belt, um, and uh, therein lies a problem. And then the uh, Waiyang and Bureau Happel project, which is in that kind of 60 miles from London, or 65 miles from London circuit, that goes from Southampton through to um, Felix to uh, Ipswich and Felixstowe. So, um, and it's interesting, I think, that. Uh, in that already we've got Clegg has come along and said he's thinking about five new towns in the Oxford to Cambridge axis well if you look at that axis you'll see it's already getting quite crowded with Bicester and Milton Keynes and Bedford but uh, we, we, wait, we await developments I mentioned that the Rudlin project was based upon uh, not learning process in in Oxford, and I think Oxford is a classic case, as the green belt on the left on the uh, left-hand side of that screen shows. Fant amazing green belt, um, absurd in most respects, I think. Um, but and of course the A34 corridor, which runs through the middle, um, connecting a whole series of um, high-tech uh, industrial um, and uh, research laboratories, and of course this whole awareness that's developing in Oxford of the need to develop a spatial growth strategy, strategic urban design, really. And I was interested when I read the small print, Nick Falk and John Rowland uh, of urban design group Stalwarts were very uh, much involved in this. Um, the housing shortage, of course, in Oxford, 6,000 people on the housing waiting list. The problems of car commuting, reducing quality of life. Um, Civic Society sponsored a whole series, five major symposia, um, and brought the five local authorities together. So this is all about the duty to cooperate, really, and a very interesting example. And a very interesting example because Oxford are realising how much further ahead Cambridge is than them. And um, so here we have some we have a proposal for some eight initiatives which are going to underpin strategic urban design. Whether you can make it a reality, of course, is the next question. I put this one in really to, um, this is from The Guardian, it's actually from Lloyd's Banking Group Research. I presume Lloyd's are thinking about where people are going to be buying houses and mortgages, etc. And it was a very powerful diagram of how the ever-widening impact of London on the outer southeast, the greater southeast, price having a major negative effect pricing out the locals. 
Um, and here, of course, they're only looking at the potential house price savings for um, those who commute. But of course, they, uh, it talks about 59% um, of people, you know, uh, potentially, uh, that's, the, that's the, sa the saving they can make on their house prices in return for one hour in, one hour out uh, as an absolute minimum extra commute. Uh, but I think when you look at all the places which have got the fastest UK house price rises, they're pretty much on, the, on this map, or they're not on the map, they're on the edge of it, like Brighton um, and uh, Southampton, places like that. So I thought this was quite prophetic, and of course, obviously based upon rail commuting. And it's an interesting, interesting that a bank is thinking like this, when our actual product of where we're putting housing is really um, somewhat random when all the, the, the transport infrastructure is essentially concentrated in London. That amazing diagram from the Institute of Public Policy Research, which shows that £2,595 public expenditure on public transport in the southeast, in London, and £5 per head in the northeast. Uh, you know, I mean, I love having the London Overground and all that, those connections, and I use them, but it is absurd that there's not anything uh, approaching that for other locations. And then the final little piece in really in this uh, middle section, looking at um, the Wolfson entries, this question of the Greenbelt, uh, because uh, certainly in the, in the um, uh, example from uh, Barton Wilmore, this is impinging directly upon the Greenbelt. And we'll see in the Centre for Cities, their solution on the bottom left here, you know, they are looking very hard at um, the Greenbelt. And the debate about Greenbelt has been going on now for a long time and there's still no movement. Poor Cheshire has been talking the same talk for 30 years and still no one really paying attention, no one in high places really. Uh, and he's looking for a selective building on the lowest amenity parts of the Greenbelt. And I think that's a very sensible element. And certainly the Centre for City Strategy is looking at that as a possible major source of potential land. But we know the, ba the boundaries. And we know, of course, that Pickles has deliberately re-emphasized recently that Greenbelt boundaries should only be altered in exceptional circumstances. An unmet housing need is unlikely to outweigh the harm to GB, to the Greenbelt. That is a kind of extraordinary statement, really, when you think about it in terms of the harm that housing shortage is doing. Um, the London housing strategy, I come to this really because I needed, an exam I needed to look in detail at, at the question uh, of affordable housing and what was happening to it um, and other associated questions, the loss of social housing, the, uh, the question of towers, all those sorts of things. So I thought I would look closely at the London housing strategy and see how that's working out and, and at the question of the targets. The target here is set at 42,000. Many people think it should be set something like 62,000 uh, as a realistic figure. And that, of course, would blow the whole process sky high. You can see the, um, the, uh, the break up, breakdown, really, of, of the uh, elements. Um, we've got 10,200 10, affordable small units and discounted rents. We'll see the problem with that in a moment. Um, we can see private rental beginning to appear significantly. 
Uh, we've got the intermediate to buy, which again is another very expensive option uh, and is not going to affect those on the bottom ladder. When you look at sort of the, the detailed data, there's some very interesting things about the decline in social housing on the top here, which is masked really by I think, what I think are two batches of Olympic housing that were put in at that point to keep that, to, to, to boost that figure. But I think that is a figure which is certainly on the way down. I can demonstrate that in a moment. The crossover between private rental and social rental is a second really important statistic and, and trend. And then the third one, you know, the falling, uh, falling uh, overcrowding in social rent, the increasing overcrowding in private rent. I think that's partly generational change in social rent, but the private rent is, of course, taking the strain by and large in terms of uh, shortages of housing and overcrowding. The reworking of the housing targets, um, I want to focus really upon the, the bottom, bottom right, the actual targets that have emerged here. Um, there was a, uh, a reworking uh, and a, sig a significant uplift um, from uh, the uh, for, 40 to, up, up to 42,000 uh, housing units. Um, but the real concentration, I think, is in these six central boroughs, Tower Hamlets, um, in uh, Greenwich, in Newham, in uh, Lambeth, and in Southwark. They've really, that's where the growth is really coming. And I don't think it's any ac accident that uh, 140 towers are planned, according to the Skyline study, residential towers in these uh, boroughs. So, you know, we, what we have here is a kind of coincidence of tall building policy, or, or no tall building policy, and um, the, uh, co the concentration in the poorer boroughs. And I think that's very significant in terms of uh, what's likely to happen. The mayor promises 42% of affordable housing in London. 60% um, rent, 40% in buy, uh, with half the affordable capped for the needy, so it says. But I think the current London affordable rental average is 69% of market value. And that's more than twice social rent. So affordable is something which is off the scale, really. It's not, it simply doesn't happen. And when we look at Mount Pleasant, Mount Pleasant development recently, which the uh, mayor approved over the heads of Islington and, and, and Camden, uh, the affordable one beds are for those of an, on an income of 55,000, they reckon, and the two beds for those with incomes of 80,000 or more. So it is quite extraordinary. We always need to know the percentage of social rent. That's the, that's the most measurable and the key uh, measure that we need to focus on. And of course, that is the one that's obfuscated in all of these uh, statistics and all of these, um, all of these cases. So here's a few examples. This is um, Earl's Court, Opportunity Area. Great piece of Farrell urban design, wonderful integration into the fabric. 15 hectares of green space, medium rise blocks, a la Prince of Wales, 11 storeys, low carbon commitments but only 740 intermediate rent properties. And we know that intermediate rent is not really affordable. And then they're replacing 760 that they're social housing, which they're going to demolish. 
So at least we've got, we're not losing those units. But the net affordable is 11%. How does that compare with 42%? Or is this part of the kind of central London versus the rest of London bias that is creeping in? The Vauxhall and Battersea um, opportunity area is again another example where it's very difficult to find the, the figures. Um, and, but I know that Foster's and Geary, for example, have got 15 and 8% for their towers behind the, uh, the power station. The Royal Mail, which has just come in uh, in the centre of the project, uh, is going to produce 20, uh, 15%. And the new Covent Garden, which is back from the water of two, two, two behind the railway to the uh, south of the railway, is going to have um, 20% for locals, whatever that means. But of course, the whole riverfront is really uh, no-go area in terms of affordable housing. So, you know, the, fig the net figure is going to be quite shocking. And I was interested to see on the recent uh, double spread that, that um, Rowan Moore put in the Observer, uh, looking at King's Cross. And this quote from, uh, about King's Cross, the last of its kind, too little sign that other large developments are pursuing social goals to this degree. So I think it isn't just a question of affordable housing, it is that wider social question as well. At least in, we have one example here of new social rent uh, in the art house, which was an HDA winner in 2014, but only 29% social rent, so you know quite quite a small proportion. But of course, the master plan, the northern edge of the master plan, has a lot more in the wings, and we'll be watching that very carefully. And then moving on to the London Estate Regeneration Program, um, I was dismayed to uh, when. Saddles and Pickles came together to uh, look at this, to maximise capacity in London and to build some, or to turn their, uh, the, 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 the big council house estates into a kind of model of Pimlico and Islington, as they describe it. Terrace streets of houses, apartments and commercial space. Demolishing the towers to, to get authentic Londonish neighbourhoods. Really, the, the words are just... Unbelievable, really. Um, so I looked at three examples, um, slightly random, not entirely. Um, Woodbury Dam was the, the first example in Hackney. Um, it's right on the two reservoirs in Hackney, so it's, it's very different, really, from the rest of Hackney. Uh, it's on the Manor House Tube, and it originated under Labour as a DCLG mixed communities project. Um, but what it is, really, is that a, a very long uh, and convoluted process between the council's master plan and now a new master plan. I have to say that in that process, the urban design, I think, has improved dramatically. But, of course, the, the actual consequences in numbers is fright really frightening. So here's the, the view, the air view. You can see the blue covering on all those which are being demolished. So we're demolishing... Uh, somewhere in the region of uh, uh, 1,500 social units and replacing two-thirds of those. Uh, there's a large intermediate uh, component, but that in the planning report it says the housing department insists that these are not affordable. Uh, so, you know, that's the, that of course has been ignored in the decision. And now we've got, so now we have 5,500 units, so the density's gone up significantly, which is probably a, a good thing, 
in terms of you know, the housing crisis and housing shortage overall in an accessible location uh, as long as the design's good and the design is quite good um, so I think it's uh, there's quite a lot of positives that's the new master plan on the left perimeter blocks etc um, the towers of course uh, you won't be surprised to know that 55% of phase one in the towers was sold to Southeast Asians mainly Singaporeans of course because Singaporeans live in public housing almost uh, by and large so uh, but they're investing in the London market and no doubt there will be some surprise when they realize quite what they've invested in the Haygate estate is my second example this is the this is the uh, the sine qua non really of, of exploitation uh, 1,200 council houses replaced by 79 social rent and then 500 affordable rent uh, plus 3.5 million to the London Borough of Southwark for a leisure centre. Um, we've got 2,300 new apartments from Len Lease. <coughs> the starting set price of these is 380,000. So, you know, it's going to have to be quite something to bring that down into anything approaching affordable. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, the rents. Um, Southwark spent £65 million decanting the tenants from this project um, and then lease paid £55 million for the, site, for the site. But the net result is, of course, the bottom right, what they call the Haygate diaspora. These are where all the social tenants have gone. Out to the fringes of London, uh, it really with no, no prospect of, of buying anything uh, in, in proximity and of course uh, the whole way in which the deal is structured is, is very opaque in fact the, the London Borough Southwark and then Lease both went to court really to protect their, the confidentiality of the deal um, they didn't, were worried really because it's 3,000 pages of spreadsheets so no one was going to find their way through that anyway um, but fortunately the uh, tribunal said no you have to publish it so somebody's going to do a great PhD thesis on that sometime uh, I hope so anyway my third example is, a, is actually a cave potential exemplar uh, and again it, it's in, indicative of the problems that, that researchers have in, in trying to find out how much council housing is actually here 1900 council houses have been replaced with 15.25 affordable so there's obviously a net loss and that affordable could be uh, by, for, by for, for rent or for sale uh, it could have some social component um, but it's basically a completely different estate one third, one third um, affordable one third for sale one third for private rent uh, but it is very interesting in terms of what they've been able to do in terms of increasing density but also very significantly increasing the green space, linking the green space together with other um, with existing uh, streams and things from Sutcliffe Park to the uh, to the south, um, and generally a very high quality of uh, of design. Well, that comes from very good architects, Lifshitz, Davidson, and Sanderlands. John Rowland did the urban design, so you know you're getting a very good product really, but. Again, the question is, well, where is the social rent? So the London housing strategy, I wrote in a moment of generosity, in the balance. Um, I don't really think it is in the balance. 
um, I think it's uh, heading for uh, a very, very difficult time, really. Uh, there are good things about it. The London Housing Design Guide's good. Parker Morris plus 10%, lifetime home standards. These things are very positive. External amenity space, linking it to internal design. Those things are all good. Support for modern methods of construction, yes, etc., etc. But um, the, uh, the question really is the negatives. And the amount of new build, I think, uh, that is uh, for overseas investors. BPF says 49%. 55% in the first phase of, of um, Woodbury. Um, the GLA argue that we need this to, these, these are vital pre-sales to kick-start development. Well, yes, they may be, but I'm sure they're just going to continue and continue and continue. We use that argument for buy-to-let, and it turned out to be the majority, in, even in places like Cardiff. So it's a very, you know, it's a very real problem. The overseas marketing rules are flouted, even though they've signed up to an agreement. Um, and this whole kind of voluntary professionalized rental structure, well, you know, we wait and see what that will, what that will actually mean. Um, so I think it's the only affordable housing is the social rent. That is 15 to 20% at best, not 42%. So that, compounded with the purchase of entire estates, I think is going to be um, like the New Era Estate in Hoxton by Westbrook from New York is going to be the future. What about solutions? Um, well, I had five solutions. I was going to mention the Netherlands. I'm just going to mention it simply like that. Three examples, Epenburg with its difference. Each subdivision is different, very closely integrated with landscape, etc., and rapid transit. Eiberg with its mixed typologies, and clever underground and above ground parking in the building. Steiger Island, where you've got this um, small builders are allowed to build, you know, and uh, there's custom building, etc., uh, in terms of a, a very, very compact development of very high quality. Um, Hall and Fork, I think, have, have made the point that we need to look at municipal land ownerships. That's the key, really, in Netherlands. Immediate transit links. Very important. Um, Multidisciplinary teams and public-private partnerships with developers were beginning to get that, I think, in some respect. The Lions Housing Review, um, my first read it, I thought, uh, was amazingly comprehensive. Um, I've been waiting for it to appear, uh, a critique to appear. Um, I've not seen a critique. I've not even seen the leader pick up, pick up on it as a kind of very important policy initiative. Um, I think there are a number of good things in it, but it has a number of vital weaknesses. The first one is the top line there. The Lions report gives up on the idea that house builders will continue to uh, produce volume supply. Um, that we've got to concentrate on small builders. I think we have to concentrate on both. Um, and the way to do that is to um, reduce the land price. We'll see that in a moment. Um, there's much more funds for housing associations. The National Housing Federation endorses that. Um, the, there's this whole question of infrastructure to be taken out of the land, uh, land value, which I think is uh, a good idea. But how is, is my question, really? Um, because it's got to pay for affordable housing and infrastructure. Um, central government would lead this. 
Um, and, but local control would be the order of the day. And it would be, like in the Oxford case, about housing growth areas and getting them to coordinate one with another. So it would be kind of sub-regional situation, uh, using all the tools that we have on good design guidance, uh, etc. So I'm dismayed that there's been no sensible discussion, really, of that, and that the Labour Party has not uh, taken up the cudgels, really, about it. The KPMG report, I think, is the better of the, uh, of the two. Um, in, I think it's very, very good, KPMG and Shelter. And I think they have a very simple idea, really, at the very beginning. Reform the land market, and then you can expand the house-building sector. If you take the land price out of the equation, reduce, recoup the betterment to pay for infrastructure, as, you know, going back to... 1939, 1947, and all of that, um, then I think the house builders will respond. They don't respond at the moment because CIL is really the last straw for them. So I think that's a very important move, and giving local authorities more power to designate new home zones uh, in terms of growth areas, housing growth areas, um, and they mentioned five new garden cities, um, I think perhaps we could do better than that still. And there's a package of, a pr of public and private investment to build more affordable homes to rent. I think this is the key thing about the shelter project, as you might expect, that they recognise um, that in, you really need to make it social rent, and that's the, the key aspect. And a housing investment bank to, to lend. And they, because KPMG are involved in it, they have explained all sorts of interesting ways in which you could use the finance that already exists and you could also get, take it out of the public borrowing requirement uh, element uh, to, to reduce the problems for people like uh, Osborne. So it's a very good report and many of the diagrams I've taken have been from that. The third one goes to the jugular really on the Greenbelt. This is the Centre of Cities project. And it takes as its starting point the most economically successful cities are the least affordable. So where cities are growing, this is where the problem really exists. London and the five, nine fast-growing cities. And this example is, again, an Oxford example, which echoes much of what was uh, the Oxford Civic Society we're talking about. Um, so they believe in intensification first, but then the accessible greenbelt has to be redesignated. And that cities have got to collaborate closely with their rural counterparts in order to come up with... Uh, to meet sub-regional needs. And there's extended borrowing powers, buying land at existing use value. Again, that's sort of the question, how is that going to be achieved? Um, and then the, the ideas of, uh, well, the Milton Keynes and the Cambridge examples are used significantly as examples of best practice, which um, have gone part of the way towards resolving that issue. And then finally, some conclusions. Um, which just pick up really on those price, on those, those of the, of the reports. Reducing raw land prices to pay for infrastructure and affordable housing. That's what Rudlin was saying, really. It's the first thing he was saying. Uh, to, and that will re-incentivize house building, I think. Secondly, get the local plans approved and then make sure that there's genuine collaboration between the adjacent local authorities on housing growth areas. We'll have to streamline and update some of the instruments compulsory purchase, uh, local development orders, and things like that. 
and we need much more money directly into a housing investment bank and of course direct to housing associations. KPMG proposed 1.2 billion directly to housing associations and I think that would be very uh, valuable. And then the final point there, number five, genuinely affordable housing, social rent to meet local need. The Labour Party talks about that, doesn't actually say what it means, but I think that's, what it, that's really what it means. There's the Greenbelt impasse. There's no discussion of housing wealth tax. We have to rely on Tom, Thomas Piketty and others to start talking about that. Um, there's no discussion of an end to council house sales, which I think is imperative, or buy to let, proper taxation. Um, there's some stuff about tax evasion in the KPMG, which is very interesting uh, as a potential um, source of, of money. And then extended council house bans, uh, council tax bans, I think, something that uh, is really worth thinking about. And perhaps that, working with the, the devolved budgets to, um, uh, to city regions, uh, uh, more than just the, uh, the big regions, to help to boost this whole kind of sub-regional growth strategy. Um, there's Thomas Piketty at the end. If you get slow growth alongside better financial returns, wealth will concentrate to levels incompatible with democracy, let alone social justice. Uh, and he also says, you know, housing, the housing wealth produced by asset um, price inflation is the principal driver of inequality in the UK. So we have incredible problems. Um, and what we do have a series of very interesting ideas about how we might tackle those. Ideas which are f certainly far more worth exploring. I'm going to close just with four examples of where we still can produce very good quality housing design. Um, in the top, top left, um, combination of Countryside and, and uh, Proctor and Matthews, um, new typologies. Um, the Hannam Hall, CSH6, the Roundtree project in, on the edge of York, and then Barking Riverside with Bellway Homes, looking at extra space for family housing. These, I think, are all good initiatives. The bottom right is a GLA one, so it shows that it can be very positive initiatives. But those are uh, the conclusions, and there are some references for those of you who really want to follow them up. But uh, they're quite, well, they're, they are copious, shall we say. That is my sermon for tonight. Uh,